Welcome to Mornings with Mike. Public Safety Today. Grab a coffee and sign up to receive your call-in information. Be a part of the show. For more information at any time, please visit www.tapsd.org. Now, let's get started with your host, Mike Pazesny. All right, folks, so in this closing segment of Public Safety Today, we're talking about school violence, and specifically now about the estranged violent juvenile offender, the EVJO, and being able to determine who it is that might be an EVJO and what's the potential propensity for violence. One of the things that you can do is to take a look at what we refer to as leakage. Leakage occurs when a student intentionally or unintentionally reveals their feelings, their fantasies, their attitudes, maybe their intentions that might signal a violent act. And how do they do this? Well, they deliver this to us. Uh, maybe they write stories or diaries or essays or poems. Maybe they draw or they doodle. Maybe they get a tat of some kind. Maybe they write a song. Uh, maybe they make some kind of a, a video or get involved with some kind of a media boast that produces some threat or prediction of what it is that they're going to do. Uh, other forms of leakage that you might be sensitive to would be when classmates of theirs are deceived into helping them to prepare for some violent act. Leakage is an intelligence function, a determining leakage, finding leakage is an intelligence function within the school. Uh, but the leakage is not only a reflection of what the student is involved in, it may be a cry for help. It may be that little shred of sunshine of sanity that the student has that is asking for your help in response to inner conflict that they're having that they understand is something that they're scared of and that they're going to, it's going to cause them to do something wrong. So if you see signs of students doing these kinds of things uh, in their stories and poems and drawings, it's going to be difficult sometimes because we have a lot of extremely intelligent young people who have been turned on to a lot of um, extremely intense um, uh, thought processes, maybe before their time and being able to handle them due to the the information society in which we live. And what you might be seeing is just a reflection of an immature brain trying to communicate things that it really doesn't even understand. It's going to become incumbent upon you to study this material and to learn it well enough to be able to decipher whether these are the innocent banterings of somebody who is just reflecting on information they've been given that they don't understand, or whether these are potentially the, 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 the mental health problems of a EVJO who's getting ready to commit a violent act. In the writings and drawings and pictures and videos and stuff, there's often a pathway that they will show you into their mind so that you can kind of understand the difference between these two different types of students. Graphic themes of violence that pervade whatever it is that they have been giving to you are often tip-offs the student is contemplating some violent action. So look for graphic themes of violence in these. Hard-copied emotional messages should be taken very seriously, especially when private uh, previous incidents of violent behavior may have occurred with these things, with these folks. So when you get comments from a teacher, hey, look at what Johnny's been writing about, or look at the art that Johnny has been doing, and then you take a look at the kids' school records and you find that there's a predisposition to violence, 
and that there's a history of some kind of violent behavior which has, which is a part of their record, then you need to identify this kid and start following up on what it is that they're doing. Peer referral. There's very, very few instances when the EVJO does not give some warning of their intentions to harm themselves or others. Invariably, in psychological postmortems of situations that resulted in injury or death to other people due to violence by the EVJO, um, is there never been students who haven't heard statements or seen notes from that student indicating his intent to do somebody harm. But most of the time, uh, they've always just kind of been written off. The problem with peer referral comes from two different ways. First, students are afraid of narking out somebody or snitching on somebody because that's going to put them into uh, you know, social problems with them. And secondly, it's that a lot of students uh, don't feel that they're safe or that their opinion is harmless and why would they want to open the door uh, to you know, maybe getting somebody in a lot of trouble. So what they'll do is they'll just stay quiet about the whole thing and then uh, avoid that EVJO who is uh, scaring them. When you interview the potential EVJO, uh, you ap- apply the six-step model that we've been talking about. And I doubt in the time that we have remaining, I'm going to be able to get all the way through the process, but I'm going to go as far as I possibly can. Again, uh, part of the uh, training that we have been providing to you is based on Richard K. James's book, Crisis Intervention Strategies. And um, we really, really suggest that you go out and you purchase this book. It's an excellent text. So when you're interviewing the potential EVJO, there's a threat analysis that you have to do, and there's a tri-state threat assessment that you come up with. One is low threat. Low threat is one that where that kid poses a pretty minimal risk. The threat that they are transmitting after you interview them is vague. Uh, the information is inconsistent. It's implausible. It's unrealistic. You know, Johnny's just, he was blowing off some steam and he said something stupid at the time. And even though it was kind of scary to listen to, you don't think Johnny's going to be able to do anything with it. A medium threat is one that could be carried out. Um, it may appear to be unrealistic at the time, but the wording indicates that, you know, he's given some thought to how it could be carried out. He's got some ideas about how he could arrange things, how he could build things, how he could put together things. There's a general indication of place and time. You know, he's given enough thought and consideration that he knows when he would do it and about when he could do it. Um, There's a little indication that that student has actually taken any kind of preparatory steps or that they've actually made some kind of concrete plans. But, you know, there are specific statements that convey the threat. You know, they're saying stuff like, well, I'm serious. I'm going to do this. That that elevates it to a medium threat. There's some thought that's gone in behind it, and he's got a general idea of when he would want to do something. And then last but not least, we have what we hope we don't ever run into, and that's the high threat. The high threat student poses a serious danger to the safety of others. The threat is direct, it's specific, it's plausible. They can They can carry it out, they know when they're going to carry it out, and what they're going to carry out is something that they've given a great deal of thought to. Concrete steps have been taken toward carrying out the plan with, a, with opportunity, knowledge, and a lethal methodology to be able to get it done. So those, those scenarios of low, medium, and high threats are part of that uh, problem definition process when you're trying to assess uh, the school shooter, you know, in the case of uh, the FBI models, uh, but any kind of uh, student uh, intervention. So the school crisis worker 
again, because we're looking at this from a crisis intervention strategy, the school crisis worker who interviews a potential EVJO initially needs to proceed with just basic listening and just basic responding skills. Reflect on the student's feelings. Let the student vent. Let them try to get some of that anger out of their systems. Uh, you need to understand that there are other negative emotions that may be supporting the anger that the student feels underneath what it is that they're going to be venting to you. So they'll have a lot of suspicion, a lot of betrayal of feelings. They'll be embarrassed that they're having to be in the situation that they're in with you. As a result of that, they'll be anxiety-ridden. They'll be insecure. Um, and all of these kinds of negative feelings uh, are going to be pushing that student toward violence, but also making it very difficult for them to be uh, appreciating what it is that you're trying to do. Then the second part of that six-step process is what? Ensuring safety, right? Assessment of lethality in the case of crisis intervention with one of these students is primary in any kind of a crisis intervention situation. And this ensuring of safety is something that we usually refer to as coming in as the second step, but you and I both understand that it is something that you do throughout the entire crisis intervention process. So contrary to exploring issues by using open-ended questions, when we're starting to ensure safety of ourselves and others in dealing with this person, we start to assess the potential for suicidal or homicidal behavior by asking closed-ended questions. So we've gone from open-ended questions in the preliminary to ensuring safety being more closed-ended questions. Here we try to determine more direct answers about the student's threat level that we believe that we have been able to appropriately assign. Well, is there a motive? Is there an opportunity? What are the specifics of the method of the plan? What are the means? Most people who are in a psychological crisis who have suicidal or homicidal ideation will talk about what they're going to do. And talking about their plan does not make them necessarily more likely in carrying out their plan. They may believe that they've exhausted all other possibilities. Uh, their willingness to talk about their thoughts and their actions is then seen as a positive sign and an indication that at least a little part of them believes that there might be some kind of alternative. So you being able to get them to talk about that plan helps to present to them that maybe they don't have to go through with it. The EVJO fits this pattern because their anger and their need to vent is something that you can tap into. If your questions are asked of them in a non-judgmental way, if you show them some empathy when you're talking with them, they will be willing to talk with you about the four points that we just listed. There's one major exception, and that's the one that we've been differentiating throughout this entire discussion, and that is that we have two kinds of EVJOs, the mentally ill EVJO and the one who isn't mentally ill, because if you get involved in a crisis situation with a mentally ill EVJO, you're probably dealing with an individual who suffers from some form of paranoia. First and foremost, they will be unlikely to voluntarily come into counseling to begin with, and they probably won't think that they need the counseling. He's going to believe that it's the other people who are all wrong. He's going to believe that it's everybody else who's messed up and not him. So persuading him to talk might be best accomplished by getting him to talk about them. And then you displaying uh, a lot of empathy with regard to injustices that have been perpetrated on him. You see the difference in the angle there? With the non-mentally ill EVJO, they will communicate to you about the, where their anger comes from, and it will be from within them. So you can be non-judgmental and empathic toward them and willing to talk about what's bothering them. 
in the mentally ill EVJO, they will explain to you that there is nothing wrong with them. It's everybody else who's screwed up. So you change your methodology to talking with them about everybody else who it is that's messed up and not that EVJO themselves. If they uh, gravitate toward that and if they react to that positively, then you know that you have identified a mentally ill EVJO correctly and then you can move on from there. So the threat assessment goes up uh, become because each of these individuals, as you get a motive and an opportunity and a method and a means, uh, as you start to get those things from the EVJO, the threat assessment level goes up, right? The motive of the EVJO a lot of times will be unclear. And a lot of people then will dismiss it as inconsequential, but that's a mistake to dismiss this kind of ideation because it is not just the motive itself, but it is the intensity with which it's discussed that are more uh, that is more important. The more the EVJO uh, is um, communicating to you about the injustices done to them, the more that he clarifies and elaborates on his plan, and the more he explains the opportunity he has to carry it out, the more lethal his means, the higher that that threat assessment needs to be. Obviously, if the EVJO expresses to you that they have access to firearms or other weapons and that they know how to use them, well, then the threat level goes all the way to the top. There's an increased risk for violence, and you should not hesitate to ask the student what he knows about firearms and access, and a police officer needs to uh, become involved in the situation as quickly as possible. The next step is providing support. In any case in which a student's lethality level is high, we need to provide clear owning statements about what we'll need to do in order to keep them safe and keep other people safe. Parents have to be informed. A line of communication needs to be established with law enforcement, with school administration, and with other agencies who might end up getting involved in the whole thing. And then you have to try to figure out how you're supposed to act about all this. You know, what do you do? In this case, you have to continually assess that student. If the crisis worker depends that the student is a threat, then your response needs to be an immediate referral and notification to parents and administrators and law enforcement personnel. If, the, if you determine that the student's lethality level is not high, then you can move forward in the model to examine alternatives and make plans and obtain a commitment to work on positive actions, which are the rest of those six steps that I didn't know if I was going to be able to get to. An investigation might indicate that the behavior that you're seeing was just a statement that the, the student made that didn't have any other meaning other than the student just being ticked off at that point in time and, and just you know being aggressive about the whole thing. But in today's school environment, threats against others cannot automatically be discounted. Uh, you also need to ensure that you keep a record of the encounter because if it isn't written down, it never happened, right? Make sure that that, is, that encounter is documented and is put in the student's file, and then you need to put on your ticker list to follow up with that student to make sure that those threats don't go uh, get promoted into uh, some form of action. A primary consideration in what you do in acting during that stage is if the student's carrying a weapon. If you feel the relationship is positive enough with a student and the student indicates that he has a weapon in his possession, uh, maybe your school policy may be that you can ask for it uh, to put it into safekeeping. You know, when obviously if you ask a student for a weapon, you should make sure it's always handed over butt first or handle first or however you want to consider it. You don't want the receiving end of the weapon to be what's pointed towards you. 
Um, if you are unsure of the student's intent or if the student is resistant, but the student's admitted to you that they have a weapon, immediately seek help. Get the heck out of that room. Uh, increase your reactionary gap. Make sure that other people get away from the student and get some help on the way. If the student indicates that his weapon is in a locker or some other hiding place, something like that, um, you should make sure that there's another person who goes with him or her to the hiding place. It's not your responsibility to be a hero and try to take a weapon away from a student who has brought the weapon into school, smuggled it in, potentially with plans to use it against other individual. There's no perfect formula for determining whether to attempt to get a weapon away from a student or whether to leave the premises to get help. Whatever it is that you determine to be your safest course of action is what you have to follow. The important point to think about here is that a lot of schools will have written formal statements on how they want these kinds of things handled. They'll have written procedures that address and ensure the safety both of the at-risk students who are involved in these situations as well as the faculty and the staff. And these things should be addressed during in-service or uh, during orientation and during in-service training. Faculty and staff should all be sensitized to the warning signs and to the proper referral process within that school uh, for at-risk students. And there should be identification and training of mental health professionals on-site or readily available as crisis teams. Prevention materials should be available for distribution to students and parents in the community and for classroom discussions. And there should be procedures for psychological screenings and identification and counseling of at-risk students. All of these uh, written policies and all of these procedures should be part of the administrative burden that all schools uh, don't ever uh, hedge against getting accomplished. And, the, and one of the biggest problems with a lot of school safety planning is that the school safety plan ends up being some 15-pound document that gets dusted off once a year during an audit process and never gets practiced, and nobody ever reads it. Nobody really understands it. They'll do fire drills. They'll do tornado drills, but they don't do active shooter drills. You know, and and there's a reason for this too. You don't want to spread the idea around, right? Um, you, you, that kind of that kind of acting, if it's done in less than the most respons uh, responsible manner, could be a contagion to violence. So obviously, we don't want to do that. But there's a happy medium in there where we have an appropriate amount of planning, we have a a, a enough leadership and enough duplicity of leadership and roles in it to make it effective, but we don't make it so burdensome that there's no way in the world that it can be done. And, and unfortunately, that happens a lot of the emergency planning. That's about all the time that we have available today, and we have just barely scratched the surface of crisis intervention strategies within schools. There's a, there's, we could do 40 hours just on this one thing, uh, but this is all the time that we have available for today. So we really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for giving of your time. To all of our public safety professionals out there, thank you for the job that you do. We respect and we admire you, and we appreciate you being there. Uh, one thing you need to remember, please, always public safety people, Stay safe. Thank you so much for being here, folks. Goodbye, everybody. We hope you enjoyed today's training presentation with your host, Mike Pozesny. Please visit www.tapsd.org, America's best source for online public safety training. Thank you for being America's peacekeepers. Visit www.tapsd.org for more information on how to subscribe or enroll and learn how you can build a career today.